0: Nam Mothasa Paka
1: in this world may be seeing shining full above them and um, now at this time and we think about it as the lunar commemorative date uh, of the Buddha's very first teaching just as chanting a moment ago Namotasa there's something about these words and the sound of this chant that I feel like very very deep in my body and mind, like passing through the ages, knowing also that this has been being recited since encountering the Buddha uh, before Parinibbana, while still embodied human form, uh, like these human bodies, (coughs) like us uh, as a human being walking uh, on this earth together, Walking and walking, meeting people, and talking to them, speaking about Dhamma in ways that uh, opened up their their eyes, their their hearts, opened them up to new possibilities of uh, what it could be uh, to be human uh, by seeing that in someone else was actually living it and feeling an opening of possibility in their own bodies and minds contemporary language, we would say their mirror neurons got touched and moved. <laughs> and so that potential, uh, through seeing it in someone else, and through hearing, through through embodiment, through seeing, through hearing, through all of their senses, uh, got, got activated in them. Their minds began to open to that possibility, and uh, former closed views, and tight views, and tightly bound up views, and obstructing views, and convoluted perceptions of things, of themselves, of others, of of how one has to be with each other, all these um, bound up and sometimes twisted up whole thickets um, of strange ideas about identity, about ourselves, about who we are, what we are, what this world is, all of those beginning to, uh, to open to be able to uh, see light between the spaces and clarity, and the, those spaces getting getting larger and larger, opening up until all all obstructions fall away and are are released, and left with the great beauty, the great emptiness, the great clarity. It's called the the highest emptiness or the highest freedom of nibbana. Nothing left to obstruct or secure or fetter or bind or uh, escape or to catch on fire because a fire of ignorance and all of the things that it burns, whether through craving, through longing, uh, through through thirst through irritation, through aggravation, through aversion, through hatred, Uh, uh, twisted distortions of delusion, deep confusion, doubt, all of those cleared and released with the underlying causes healed. So as I was chanting Namotasa, I was thinking about the Buddha in the time that we recollect at this time uh, of having awakened, sitting under the Bodhi tree and having awakened and then uh, being the only one in the world to be so, so awake. Even the heavenly beings, whether it's the Great Mother Goddess who's uh story is that she she turned up in the earth witness story or whether the great father God uh who came and said that there are those with little dust in their eyes and um asked to teach the dhamma these stories are are all there, what uh, we know at some point uh, after abiding blissfully. Oh, with enormous gratitude and appreciation for the Dhamma, and for the circumstances that made it possible to awaken, including who is called the first disciple of the Buddha, Sujata, a lady, local local village girl who came to give the food, that was the, that was the nutriment or, the local, local, cowboy, uh, who. Uh, gathered grass, what is it, hay, Um, maybe kusa grass, supposed to be good for seats for uh, recluses and made the seat to sit on, Mm, or his monastic companions who abandoned him, (laughs) because when he had his intuition of the middle way, we thought he was going lax, going soft went off to keep the hard practices. But there was the time when he was there alone after awakening, and I was was thinking while chanting Namotasa, oh, maybe it's awfully lonely uh, to chant alone like this. Somehow I doubt the Buddha felt alone or lonely at that time, but still there was something uh, in his heart, something in his dedication, something very deep and very strong, It led him then to get up and to move, to survey the world with his uh, dhamma eye, or eye of awakening, or divine eye. And uh, uh, anyway, the eye that makes it so we can look and see at the world and see causes and conditions that are there with many living beings and what kind of potential, what kind of actuality there truly is in this world not a false hope, not a pipe dream, not a false expectation, but the eye that makes us see through seeing and knowing the truth of the Dhamma, causal conditionality, what the conditions actually really are and what can be done that will have what effect. Seeing that and then seeing clearly there are those who don't have so much dust in their eyes. It's true. Who will be able to understand, who will be able to work, with what I've realized who will be able to benefit from it and to gain great benefit from it. So he set off walking towards where he saw some practitioners were gathered who he thought would be the best first ones to try it out with. Because until then, can say, oh, that's nice, the the Buddha's vision of the possibilities for humanity, that's nice, but so far, not yet proven. Only one thing was proven, that was that he himself could accomplish what he had set out. He was able to prove that himself. But could it actually be shared with anyone else, this Dhamma, uh, effectively? Could he teach anyone else to practice? Would anyone else be able to realize and understand what he was what he was saying? After all, with his first intuition of the middle way that was successful for awakening, his ascetic companions went off. <laughs> they didn't believe it. <laughs> they thought they thought it was bogus, and that they knew the, the true way. So they they left. And so we don't don't know at that time of the story whether there's going to be uh, whether it's going to work or not, and I know for contemporary teachers as well, I've known a number of both lay teachers and monastic teachers who've experienced insight, realization, through their practice, and then wish out of compassion, out of compassion, seeing so many other people suffering about things that then look so unnecessary. It doesn't have to be like that. It's not. In one way it's existential suffering, but in another way it's not. It's optional existential Mm -hmm. suffering. There's the part that's not optional, but then there's the whole spectrum that is, and seeing that whole spectrum that is optional and doesn't have to be like that. And... uh, then really with the wish, oh, that they could also see what I've been able to see, oh, that they could also experience this bliss, experience these benefits, this beauty, this freedom of heart. Oh, that would be so wonderful if if that were possible. And then with this beautiful, beautiful wish, beautiful heart to do that, then trying to, and sometimes can, sometimes can't. Because just because one has become an arahanta or had a genuine realization doesn't mean that they'll necessarily have the merit to be able to teach effectively. So this is one of the things that we deeply, deeply appreciate the Buddha for because he is also an arahanta, also an awakened one, as his disciples were also awakened ones. but Some of them were able to teach well and widely and others not. Uh, mostly they had their different propensities. So it's like if you're strong in one thing, to then send to one teacher. If you're strong in another thing, then send to another teacher. Or as the stages of your practice develop, it's still the case these days. Those teachers went off in different directions and some of them went into what's become Tibetan traditions and some went into what's become Zen traditions and some went into what's become Theravada. Yes. Uh, for all these different traditions and different aspects of the strength, strengths, special strengths, uh, uh, unique realizations that the disciples of the Buddha have been, have been passed on. But who we greatly, greatly appreciate as the teacher, is who really does have the ability to teach uh, effectively in ways that touch our heart, make a difference for, for us, and give us some idea of how we can engage with the path ourselves in ways that will be uh, effective, effective, that will have benefit for ourselves, others, uh, ourselves and often out of compassion we wish also for those we love, for our world. Uh, so the Buddha then set out walking Along the way, then, a couple of merchants saw him and uh, apparently he looked abnormal because, uh, and in this story, not because of having a, a bump on the top of the head or long ears, <laughs> uh, apparently the, the, the ears stretched down by the, the earrings are uh, a normal thing at that time, and uh, probably he didn't really have a flaming thing on the top of his head. <laughs> That's a symbol for something else. Uh, the, is it the uh, flame or jewel in the lotus? Uh, but there was something that looked very special and different and that led those uh, merchants uh, who saw him to actually ask if he was a god. If he was a a divine being, he said, I'm not a god. (laughs) I feel actually so fortunate in Buddhism that this this particular encounter has been remembered and passed down Um, because a natural thing to think uh, when someone looked as he did, apparently. Uh, He said, I'm not a god, I'm Buddha. He wasn't saying Buddha as his name or as a title that he wished to adopt like the way that we use it now, but Buddha as saying, I am awake to express what his what state his was. So from this then we get calling, calling. Look at this image there, but we don't know what he, what he looked like. Oh, whether it looked like the, I don't know, Thai Buddha image or Sri Lankan Buddha image or Indian Buddha image or Korean or Japanese or Tibetan or Mongolian or Nepalese or now we have all these wonderful Western Buddha images that, uh, and and even the old Greek ones, the Buddha looks really like a Westerner <laughs> in the very, very beginning of Buddhist statuary, which is uh, supposed to have and been been developed from Greece. But something in all of those images that identifies that image of uh, to be of the Buddha, and what is that? Something that passes through uh, age or size or nationality or race or ethnicity, any of these things. Something that we all know deeply in ourselves, even if it doesn't have words, might not know how to articulate, but we know it. There's a recognition in us of what that is because it's deep and a part of us, whether a latent and underlying part that barely ever gets seen or touched on a part that has been seen and known and is being nurtured, is being watered, is being cared for, is being supported, and is growing and blooming and blossoming and spreading and bearing fruit in one's life as it can, as it can. Because like with our genetics, just a fortunate circumstance, doing something, like meditating or practicing mindfulness, turns on a genetic potential. It's in-wired in all of us, and just by that action, or just by that thought, it gets turned on, and then this, uh, like a waterfall, or a cascade of effects, and passes through body and mind, turning on more and more switches, opening up roads and routes of possibility that are built into our biology, our psychology, as human beings opening up all those roads, sometimes I think about it like turning on the Christmas tree, like turning on uh, all all of the lights uh, opening up all of the channels so then the Buddha was walking and came to a place called deer park the deer sanctuary in rishi patana isi uh, an area where rishis uh, sages gathered to practice now i just found out yesterday that this particular moon that we're under in the united states in the west is also called the Deer Moon. I had never known that before. Then I wondered, is there some kind of connection? (laughs) Is there some kind of uh, coincidence? I don't know. Uh, But it's called the Deer Moon, uh, Buck Moon, um, because this time of this particular moon, this time of year is the time that the young deer start the nubs for their antlers. Start to, start to come out. So it's called the, the dear moon. It's, uh, uh, tonight is a super moon. Uh, so the moon is uh, going to appear, if we can see it, very, very large. It is the day of the year where the moon is closest uh, to the earth this year. Uh, in particular, so that the tides will be high, and the, the gravitational forces that are there between earth and moon and how we feel them in our bodies and minds are all at a kind of point of uh, uh, maximum during this time. And we have uh, Buddhist monks so, uh, and monastics, uh, meditators, all around the world who are also gathering together uh, during these normally, like this 24-48 hour period uh, to think about the Buddha's first teaching, uh, to think about the vasa and the meaning of the vasa, and for the monastics, many, to enter into uh, three months of retreat, three months of special study and practice, uh, three months of the focus of working on their work in monastic life, uh, whether on themselves or in their interrelationships via sankha together, uh, sharing the Dhamma with others who are local, because during this time we can't travel far away and stay long away, but we make the commitment to be here uh, together during this time. Uh, for all those in this area, and for really, like when monastics determine to spend the Vassa together in a particular place, according to old Buddhist tradition, that's really like putting down the roots of the Dhamma tree into that area and and watering them. So sometimes people talk about whether whether Buddhism will really put down roots in America or not, and. Uh, Uh, What that means, I think, is whether there are people who are actually here, not just teachers coming from abroad for a little while, who touch down, who touch down, and then are are off again, but also means the practice happening here in a dedicated way, on this soil, individually and together. So this is the the period of time that we're now uh, committing to. Uh, thanks to Shari and to very many friends' support for this time uh, being here. So from uh, from this time also when the Buddha met his old companions, those who were his five companions in uh, uh, rigorous uh, austerities, uh, one could say kind of uh, uh, penances, sometimes people call it the kinds of practices that they were doing uh, penances or self mortification uh, because of the, of the harshness or uh, or rigor of some of the practices. Now the idea was to subdue on the body or to atone for past bad karma and by by doing something very hard on oneself to, to pay off the debt of that past karma or to burn off that past karma through a harsh uh, austerity. These ideas were there. This was the thing that the Buddha did and tried himself up to nearly death. There was a teaching at that time that it's only after death that one can a- actually realize the bliss of Nibbāna, like starving to death through these strong austerities, then afterwards that's that's realized with the casting off of the body. But this is a very serious, uh, big difference in terms of what the Buddha realized, because he realized Nibbāna before dying and then was able to go on to teach. For how long, Ayasobana? Grifth. Forty years. Thirty or forty mm-hmm. years? Was it forty. Did you 30. say 40? Uh, 30. Um, 30, 30 forty? Thirty. Years. 5,
2: forty years. Forty-five years. Until
1: age eighty. Yeah. Uh, so for nearly half a century, yeah? uh, to be able to then go on and teach, starting with these five who had been engaged in these rigorous austerities. And I still see people, many people, who have the idea, somehow that, you know, to get through uh, the difficult things that are in their minds or in their hearts, that somehow they have to punish themselves for those things, for them to be atoned or even our prison system might be, in a way, set up like this. It's like having to, to be punished to pay uh, your debt. I know there's a whole other idea of rehabilitation, but it seems that often the emphasis is more on the punishment and the payment than on the rehabilitation part, whereas in terms of what the Buddha uh, realized, uh, from what he felt he realized, that if, if something has been horrible and then you add punishment onto that, is not necessarily going to make everything completely well and, and good. It can be that it's, what is it, uh, like adding punishment on top of punishment. Um, so the Buddha was very much, uh, after his awakening, much more into the kind of rehabilitation teaching, meaning seeing differently how we can live and then learning uh, and practicing uh, effective means for transforming, for changing, for transforming any dysfunctional or harmful patterns not that further pain has to be heaped on pain, but rather to, to unheap, to disband, to unbind, to dispel, and let that energy be transformed and, uh, and liberated and become healthy and, and whole and uh, uh, good. So, coming upon these old companions, at first because they had uh, left him, and uh, denounced his way of uh, luxurious practice with eating, with bathing. Uh, at first, they were determined to reject him because they thought he had uh, fallen away from the true, the true path that they were still upholding. But as he walked closer. In the, in the deer park, I don't know if it's under the deer moon or not, uh, but walked closer to the deer park in the garden of the rishis, uh, the penance grove. Uh, then as they saw him also, like those merchants, they, uh, uh, they noticed something different. And my guess it was something beyond what could be done just by having a, a meal and having a bath, that something else had very deeply and significantly changed. Have you ever seen this for, uh, for yourself uh, or for any friends of yours through their practice? Then you, you see them and then you see them again later on and like, Wow, what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> same like same bodily structure is there, but like isn't it amazing how everything can somehow realign and and how these bodies can to our human eyes it can look like someone is shining light, like how we get this this whole iconography of auras and these these kinds of things it can really it can really look like that, and sometimes we feel it in our heart or sometimes we feel it in our skin or sometimes like we can see it with our with our eyes or something funny happens with the sound and the way the sound spreads. Uh, Through all of our senses it's something that we know and how did that happen? What is it that happened and how is it that we can see in ourselves or we can see in each other like that? Did you ever look at yourself in the mirror? after some time of meditation or meditation retreat. I had time one time, like normally the, the face, face is all crooked, body is all crooked, but looking at, oh, oh, everything looks like kind of <laughs> lined up differently now. How interesting. How is that? Such an amazing thing. Uh, so apparently, When they saw him, something looked very different because they had made a pact with each other not to get up, not to offer him a seat, that they were going to shun him because of his uh, abandonment of their way of asceticism and going into the lower way. But on seeing this shift, uh, apparently there was something in their hearts that recognized and rose, and then they found their bodies also standing up, and then they found themselves <laughs> greeting him, and then asking him to uh, to come and, and take a seat. Uh, and I think that that must have come from the depth of their good hearts and their real true and pure uh, intention, because otherwise it seems like their determination should have made it so that they would continue to reject and wouldn't be able to listen, but maybe that's that thing that the Buddha saw from afar. There are those with little dust in their eyes. They may not be applying themselves completely right, but so close, so close, just a little shift, not a whole lot, is what they need. So then going uh, to speak to them and them moving despite their determination, standing, rising, uh, offering a seat, and asking something like, what happened? <laughs> this part doesn't, uh, doesn't appear uh, in the sutta. Uh, the sutta begins just after this. Uh, but then the, the Buddha is sitting down, and they're attentive and interested to know, what, what is it that happened? And he begins by speaking, by saying, the way may be away.
0: nāse vītāpā.
1: There are these two extremes. Uh, he spoke to them as bhikkhus. Uh, there are these two extremes, venerables, which should be avoided uh, by one who has uh, gone forth, or who wishes to set, has entered upon the path, or who wishes to enter uh, upon the path. There are these two extremes that should be avoided. When he spoke about the first of these extremes, it was something that he definitely had experience with. The story really highlights that uh, as as a prince that uh, he had of all the kind of sensory and sensual indulgences and, you know, the kind of ego boost that it is to be on the top, to have everything, to be able to order anybody or anything, uh, uh, kind of what we imagine is the, in a particular way, like the epitome of human life in terms of having possessions, honor, name, fame, material, uh, wealth, power, glory, uh, all of these kinds of things. Uh, already been there and done that, and I feel like this is very, very useful in this case because I know how easy it is to think that really, you know, this other situation that's like in the movie or in the in the poster on the ad in the magazine in the in the book uh, or. Or when we see friends occasionally who have relatives who are very wealthy, or however it is that we see, to think that oh yeah, that'd be great, <laughs> that'd be fantastic. If I was like that, I would be so happy. <laughs> that would be excellent. That would be the coolest thing in the world, right? And apparently, for that, the Buddha is not that earlier on he was exempt to the kind of uh, kind of classic. What might be said, kind of classic male fantasy, also is like oh, babes on either arm and this kind of thing, <laughs> uh, or uh, and it. it Excuse me for saying that. I hope it's not offensive. Some people think, oh, don't talk about our Buddha like that. But but in the classical Buddhist stories, really, we we see that there there seems to have been such a culture, (laughs) and there seems to have been such a culture amongst uh, both women and men in terms of having fantastic spouses or partners or associates or really good friends or excellent business partners or, like, who you were educated with and which teacher and which place and that kind of thing. Those people had all of that going on at that time. <laughs> Just like the names and forms have changed a little bit, but uh, now it's not Taxi Love, it's the great university, but it's what? I don't know even. I'm out of the loop of what would be the fantastic, most fantastic university these days. Would it still be Harvard, or would it be something else? I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, all, all of that, And yet, for this deep sense, those things didn't do it. And in his situation, he was able to know that very clearly, having experienced that. Many times, for people who haven't experienced that, there can be the doubt or the unsurety (laughs) It's like not not quite sure, not quite clear. Thinking maybe if things actually you know, if my bed were little softer, <laughs> or <laughs> uh, I have that uh, nice new outfit, or the cool new green electric car, or whatever that might be. Not that all those things aren't fine. Maybe the bed would be helpful. Maybe the electric car really is a good idea. I don't mean that. Uh, I don't mean that the things necessarily aren't but the idea that that's going to do it for me and that's going to last and that just when I get over that next horizon and walk into the sunset uh, then then that's where it's all going to be like great forever Uh, that myth coming out of that that myth only maybe just part of it is a myth. The part about where it comes from, what leads to that, what does actually, what can, what can make it so one can walk off into the sunset. And truly, it is forever. Uh, and there's nothing, nothing more. Also, the other side, by experience, up till shortly before death, had experienced what all the most rigorous and severe of penances could do for him. Exactly how far, how much uh, could be done with that. I don't know if anyone here has ever punished themselves for anything. Uh, it's very easy to internalize from our parents, if, uh, if they were to perhaps uh, use punishment to try to let us know that something was bad, Uh, and to prevent us from doing it again. Uh, Sometimes we even forget exactly what the reason or the meaning for it, the proper meaning for it is, whether it's the parents who've somehow forgotten or the the kids who somehow forget and turns out to become something else. But uh, in terms of that also being able to really truly end festering the cankers uh, in the human heart. Not that one can't come to peace with very, very little or without all of the many, many trappings. Not that. But just that it's not by punishing ourselves that that is realized it's not punishing ourselves that brings uh, or mortifying ourselves, killing ourselves that brings uh, suffering to an end. So he mentioned these two extremes to those who had been companions both in being kind of aristocracy and then uh, companions in ascetic life uh, who were sincere, who were sincere in that. Uh, and then begin to talk about the, the Middle Way and the Noble Eightfold Path. So, I understand that Michelle and Jasmine, maybe Gabby, I don't know. Did you go to Abhayagiri yesterday? I
0: did.
1: Then Ajahn Sumedho, I understand that he taught last night. Maybe Karina is there also, I don't know about Roger. Uh, that uh, last night, Ajahn Sumedho was uh, speaking uh, up on the top of the mountain on the, the platform uh, in the cool and breezy night air uh, underneath the full moon. I don't know if you could see it or not. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so I know you could often see it, like rising a little bit later in that space there after a couple of hours. Uh, that he was speaking about what the Buddha taught Uh, and emphasizing some aspects of this. I heard about this this morning. For those who were there, do you remember anything particularly I'm interested to know? What stood out for you? What was particularly salient in what you heard uh, about uh, the Buddha's first teaching? Or, I'll give you an alternative. If you weren't there, or if you were, but you didn't hear anything especially salient last night, but you have on another occasion, then you have this alternative uh, to to say something that you have uh, uh, heard, uh, seen or heard particularly salient with regards to the Buddha's first teaching. that was really helpful or an aha for you in terms of understanding how this, what the Buddha realized and how this path all works. Who would like to share?
2: See, I told you.
1: <laughs> She's going to quiz you afterwards? <laughs> I'm supposed to, <laughs> for the full moon. i talk and if I didn't go, then to ask afterwards.
3: <laughs> this is my
1: duty <laughs> as a Bikuni. <laughs> mm, I try to keep my discipline well. <laughs> Please, go
3: ahead. Uh, it was uh, later in the talk uh, once he's already gone through the, the causes
4: of suffering, yes. And particularly um,
3: the concept of self uh, he, was, he was talking about, uh, when he's thinking, oh, I'm not done um that And it, that's actually a very small part of the time. Um, and you know, I, I was just getting a sense of the freedom of that, of the... Of the um, that a, Releasing the cause of suffering, not, not dwelling on that.
0: Hmm...
1: Less bound up with identity views?
0: Hmm...
1: And in terms of the causes of suffering, which are mentioned in this particular sutta, in speaking about the Four uh, Noble Truths, and then coming to the truth of the causation of suffering, there are three factors uh, that are that are mentioned. But for the first, I would like to say that sometimes I see this translated in English as life is suffering. And sometimes that's the only noble truth from Buddhism that people have ever heard. In fact, I experience this with quite a lot of people who are out there, who I, who I meet out in the world and, and about that this is the one thing that they heard about Buddhism. And I feel so sorry that I would like if they heard one thing that they heard about number four. That they heard about number three, <laughs> like uh, this thing about the uh, about the the middle way that the sutta opens up with. I have found found another way, uh, other than these these two extremes. There is a way uh, other than that. This is like, really, really, really nice, I think, because sometimes when we look at the world, it looks like, really like everything, and everybody is just bound up with that, <laughs> just just bound up with uh, 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 hunger and thirst and craving and aversion and irritations and uh, uh, all, all of these kinds of things. Sometimes it's hard to see anything other than that. But looking then at cause... Um, For me, this is actually the key thing that got me into monastic life. Uh, I had entered into university studies in naturopathic medicine, went to one of only two schools in the United States that had pre-nat med Uh, at that time. I thought, this is a good thing to do in human life, to try to see what we can do to uh, understand the cause because this is what I liked about naturopathic medicine at that time, is there was, there were, was the, uh, at least the, the language, there was the, what's it called? There was there's the, there's the spiel. Uh, I'm not thinking of just the right word. There was the jar- it's more jargon. than jargon, it's more than a paradigm, it's like an advertisement. There is the advertisement that not only are we working with just the effects, but we're also going to look at what is the cause of the illness, the Mm -hmm. underlying cause. So I was apprenticing with a doctor of homeopathy of the original school of homeopathy, which is like the one remedy, and then tries to really look down at what is the underlying, 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 underlying cause. And the ideal in that is to get down to the root cause of the imbalance, of the malady, of the suffering. So... I was working with that with one of the great doctors. Is the president of the College of Oriental Medicine and got to apprentice together. And like, really great. And that ideal was there. And I got to see how that was working in terms of you know patients and remedies and what kind of effects there were and that kind of thing. So we were working with the ideal. But in terms of how many people how many doctors could actually develop and this is where is that 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 boss that 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 teacher that trainer who had wanted me to meditate more because in order to be able he said in order to be able to see the cause you have to be able to perceive and in order to be able to perceive the cause you have to be able to see <laughs> and so, and how to be able to see and understand that the idea that to be able to calm, center, focus concentrate your mind, be attentive to causal conditionality is the way to be able to understand that and then to be able to work with it and so uh, I thought, wow, that's great, that's excellent get down to the root, get down to the cause so when I first encountered the Four Noble Truths than it was in the context of others who were studying like this. And it was the first time where I felt like I heard an affirmation, I'll call it an affirmation or an asservation, that from, from someone about not only an ideal, but saying, I have seen the cause, and I do know how it can be worked with and it can be ended uh, completely. And for me at that time, that was really radical, uh, especially because it it wasn't, it didn't seem just like a hypothesis or like a spoof or like a, a hope, great hope, great ideal. Which is how that had been had been broached before, and so it's like we're the, the great, great ideal, and then we're we were touching into it a little, touching into it a bit, yeah. But I couldn't see really getting down through it. There's just the hope and the the good intention there, but something about encountering these four noble truths and these words of the Buddha about having that appear in this very first teaching about having seen that uh, himself. Ayasuvijana, would you like to get the, the Dhamma Chakrabhavadana Sutta? Maybe it's buried and not possible to get, but never mind, you don't have to. Um,
4: okay. um, the red book? The red book
1: I was thinking about the blue word. one.
4: Yeah. It
1: can be in the red book, on, the red, certainly.
4: The blue book doesn't have the Pali. Oh, it does have the are right? It does have a so... Page 45. The blue book
1: was what I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> the gray book. It is the gray book. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't know where the blue book is.
1: Are you thinking about Audition Bye. I say this is the gray book. By the power of this truth, may the red book
4: bigger print.
1: I would that like one that exactly that's the one that has print so that 20, I can 20, read. 20, that's forty-five
4: as well. Maybe.
1: By by the power <laughs> of this truth, may the blue book appear. <laughs> wow, this is amazing, <laughs> like a miracle. So. Let's hope. Let's wish for things that really are possible, and this is the key point. This is the key point. When we, when we, we have these great hopes as humanity, and we have these great ideals as humanity, and yet sometimes it seems like there's this enormous gap between those great hopes, our really wonderful intentions, our, our most fantastic ideals, and then, you know, that actually being able to really, you know, work that through, through everything, and that being, that being true, that being real. So having real expectations is a very, very important part of this. This is part of the awakening process, is for the hopes for things that will never come true, the hopes for things that will never be real, the hopes for things that don't exist, yes? To see and know, that's fantasy. That's delusion, and if I hinge my heart, if I hinge my hopes on things in that kind of way, my heart is going to get wrenched, I'm going to get disappointed, because it's a false expectation, it's a false ideal, it's an untrue hope. And Then we have to, maybe we can die with that hope, and perhaps, perhaps we can be born again, <laughs> and then try one more time, and try another time, and try another time. But until, I want to ask you, until we get it real, until, until our, our deep heart's intention and our hope and our expectation aligns with the real, aligns with the, the true and the actual, how much chance is there that it will ever be realized? Give me a percent. No. Zero. <laughs> 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 <Don>. <laughs> zero <laughs> percent chance that it's going to work out like that even though we watched that part of the movie where they rode off into the sunset happily ever after together on the back of their horse <laughs> even though we watch it ten, a hundred, two hundred times <laughs> rewind, replay, rewind, replay over and over again or set it on auto-repeat <laughs> <No>. <laughs> one more time one more time even if we do that if it's not something that's real and true, <laughs> no matter what, no matter what a dream. <laughs> uh, so everything is actually like that. It's like if the if the conditions are there to support it. If they really are, then it can happen. You can sit on that. You can build on it. It will support you. (laughs) If it's not there in the right place, you sit on it and it's going to (laughs) topple because it's just conditional causality. It's this dharma of conditionality that the Buddha is breaking through with here in the the Four Noble Truths and looking at what these underlying uh, causes of suffering are. So uh, Michelle talked about self Views and underlying the self-views, it's some particular dynamic with regards our thoughts of self and concordant thoughts of other. Because these thoughts of self are these thoughts of other that we might call, uh, uh, might call ego in a way, uh, or self-identity, uh, views and thoughts, anyhow. They hinge on something. They revolve around something. They have their domain. They have their their circuit. There's the thing that it, we think there's the thing that they're attached to. <laughs> we imagine that it's like a pole, like the Buddha said after his wa- awakening. He talked about the ridge pole. Apparently, they had buildings where there was a central, a central pole that uh, everything else was was supported around, like one one main beam. Uh, And uh, there are quite a few buildings in Asia, I know, that are still made like that. I'm not sure about elsewhere, but, like, if you want to destroy that building you'd knock down that that pole and the whole rest of the building would fall, it's the the main, the primary, uh, primary pole, whether it's in the roof or coming from below or whatever, whatever that is. So we think that there's something there, that it's all hinging on, but... Uh, conditional causality doesn't look quite like that. Yes? It does if we think about, like here we have, this is the Dhamma wheel, there fluttering behind the image of the Buddha, golden flag, red wheel, 12 spokes on it. And the 12 spokes on it are for, this is symbolizing this first teaching, the turning turning of the Dhamma Wheel, this teaching that we're talking about right now, the Dhamma and Sutta, uh, here in the chanting guide on page 45. Um, if we look at that wheel, in the center we see the zero that you were just talking about, <laughs> in a way, and then the the spokes but they're all, all, it's all turning around a wheel. And the part that's right in the center is the view. View. And around that, then, mindfulness. Each spoke, and around that, the outer part of the wheel, our our effort. Um, But this center part, the view, is not, in this image of the wheel, is not filled in with anything. And there's a point there, in in that, because the craving for being and becoming, uh, craving for experience, longing for new things, uh, wanting to hold on to what is beloved, uh, mm, something else, something more, something different something fresh, something new, uh, something better. Uh, that that craving, that longing, that seeking then has its uh, counter counterpoint in, in its other face, its other side. If it were like a, uh, what is it, a, the mask dance where you see one face and then the dancer turns and then you see the other face. They're on top of just one head but it's like showing two different faces. Then the aversion The underlying dissatisfaction that's propelling that craving. And thinking that that means there's a judgment against in the current experience. This is not perfect. I can't be satisfied with this. This is not enough. This is not all right. I'm not good enough. The situation is not good enough. There's something wrong, and something else will be better. This deep, uh, deep underlying dissatisfaction, which also. In the language of the wheel is considered an imbalance. So when the wheel is true, the wheel doesn't wobble and it goes straight automatically without friction or with minimal friction. The friction that happens at that point would be considered what is existential stress. It would be there as long as there is a body because bodies... Age, get hungry. Things that are just nature of the body, but that's very different. Break down, yes. Fall on the rock, the bone breaks. It's just cause and effect, yes, (laughs) like that. It's just nature. It's just nature. So you say that's not doesn't have any kind of uh, when the mind when the heart is really clear, we see that's just nature and that's. It's like not pulling off in some strange way, but if the wheel is unbalanced it will pull off in some strange way, to one way or another. Now, I know that someone here was just with one of the great Thai forest masters a little while ago who loves, loves to teach about these kinds of tanha, especially these three kinds of tanha that we're talking about here, the bhava tanha, the the thirst, the hunger, the craving, uh, the seeking for being and becoming, the vipava tanha non becoming and sometimes people say that means like annihilation of our existence or a suicidal tendency or something but that's i mean that's kind of dramatic and yes that's that's true but just very deep even when you look at your meal and you think there was something else here, then this would be better. Or, it was a great meal, but when you take it out later and you have it again, and the next time, if you had to eat it every day, then <laughs> the, that underlying, then the festering, then, no, I want something different. <laughs> not, not, uh, not going to be, even the thing that's beloved, hard to be happy and satisfied with over and over and over again. If these types of craving predominate, uh, in the mind, and if we identify with them, you yeah, as they're as they're circling around, looping, looping around with each other like the masked dancer, showing one face, showing the other face, likes, dislikes, likes, dislikes, likes, dislikes, want this, don't want that, want this, want to get rid of that, and this like like that again and again. I, now I had learned in. Uh, uh, my first class in computers in, in high school, binary code, and like the yes-no question is everything. And then as I started to study more about Buddhism, I thought, wow, this is brilliant, right? For most people, for everything, all the time, we look at this and it's so fast. Yes, no, yes, no, like, dislike, want, want to get rid of, and, and there's like this uh, binary I heard, called binary code, but I heard that the computer world has now progressed beyond that. That's not the only way they can run. (laughs) And this is the great thing for this teaching also. Not the only way that we can be as human beings, either. Yes, there is that deep, deep program uh, there, and yet it's not the only way to be with things. For anyone who has learned even basic mindfulness, they got full instructions and even basic mindfulness, which on the wheel, yes, is one spoke, but it's also the part that goes around the the view in the center, and then this part, so that's the hub. The hub. Uh, even in Pali it's called the hub. It's like the place in a city if lots of different roads come together in the center of the city. It looks very much like a wheel like this, the uh, the hub, the concourse. Um so the mindfulness is is there with in in this way, uh, connecting to everything else. And for who, for who has learned even basic mindfulness and worked with it and got that, got what that is, how it is possible, is so revolutionary in a way. When we look at what's going on in general in the world or what our habits of mind might have been previously, to learn this amazing thing that we can be with things. Without grasping, or rejecting, without that constant, constant yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, in that in that kind of uh, in that kind of way, get get rid of, get get rid of, get get rid of, uh, that there is another way to actually be able to be with experience and one in which we can sit, we can be embodied, we can be with this body, we can be with our feelings, we can be with our mind, we can breathe in and out the whole entirety, the whole entire cycle of a pattern of breath, and then one breath, two breaths, three breaths, four breaths without that happening, and know what that is, what that is, how it, how it is then to be abiding in the middle way that the Buddha talked about. Now, some some might say that it's the the greatest asceticism, actually to be able to step back from those patterns of thinking. Bed of nails, easy in comparison. Just ask me to swallow fire. I can (laughs) get a magic book. I can learn how to do that in a short short period of time. But how to actually sit and be with body and feelings and mind and the cycle of even one breath without not involving in that uh, pattern. Now that is really really revolutionary, really amazing. Many people don't know it's even possible. But now I hope, I hope with the mindfulness revolution that this part is being taught clearly and properly. I hope to whoever it is, because it is such a great uh, base for, can be such a great base for awakening. Uh, It all it all does revolve around that, uh, that, that particular skill, yes? And doing that can help us to become aware. It's the thing, in fact, one of the helpful things that can help us to become aware of our views and see what views are, to see and know what views are, and that views are not identity, that there is nothing intrinsic or innate in a view that is a permanent self, that views are causally arisen, causally conditioned, held in holding patterns based upon particular conditions. You take even one link in the chain and open it up, and that chain falls, falls away, it opens, it doesn't continue to turn in that holding pattern in the same way anymore. So, for for the wheel also sometimes is portrayed as links, yes? Like the links and dependent origination and open up any one of the links, any, any particular place and the whole thing doesn't, doesn't bind up in the same way uh, anymore, yes? So for these deep, deep patterns, that are the, uh, what is it, Uh, underlying uh, causes of, of suffering, the underlying supporters for those views, and we look at these and touch into them and start to work with them, even from very basic beginning mindfulness practice. Someone might not tell you that that's there, that that's going to have the effect, what context it is in the whole path, and yet yet it does anyway. I mean, it gives you that, that tool, um, method. And if you happen to pick up some of the other uh, bodhi-bojangas, factors of awakening, of which mindfulness is one, if you start picking up a few of the others and putting them together, then the whole thing uh, goes to a whole other, uh, uh, whole new possibilities for, for benefit. And... Uh, awakening
0: are There. So, um,
2: there was something else in
0: Ajahn Sumedho's talk
2: that was quite interesting to me. Please tell me. In terms of the uh, Four Noble Truths and their Twelve Aspects, he mentioned why the, this Dhamma is experiential uh, rather than merely a theology is that uh, it's implied that each one of us who is practicing ought to practice until we can say as the Buddha said this is suffering suffering should be understood suffering has been understood by me the cause of suffering tanha, has been abandoned by me the end of suffering has been realized by me the path has been developed by me so that the, uh, the inspiration in that talk is uh, we're human beings and we can practice until we know these things uh, not as a catechism, not as a theory um, not even as a, a theory that we love and admire uh, but rather uh, from what we know directly through our own lived experience.
1: It's to do that. Um, Karina, what you like to share? Um,
5: something you said... Uh, I'm always looking for the, the words that stick in my mind. You said, um, cleaning is propelled by dissatisfaction. Hmm. Um, and it was there was a cold wind that night. Um, and he said, It's, it's, I can't quite remember exactly, but it said, it's the nature of the body to feel it is, that's how the the body is like it is, the wind is like it is, Um, and and suffering is extra. So just the idea of acceptance um, as a counterpose to dissatisfaction came up. To the, the whole you know, things are as they are. And just, the similarly to what you said, as far as uh, hoping for something that's possible. But, you know, sometimes that's mm. hard to know. What are, how, how are things?
1: Yes. One time we were walking for Olm's Round uh, in Niles, in the Niles Historic District down in the East Bay. Um, and where our original Vihara was, we used to go walk for Pindapat for alms round, uh, in the morning there, just about every day of the first two vasas uh, there in, in that area, uh, it's, it's in in easy walking distance. And first day walking through the town, I think, walking through the street and I looked over at one house on the side and someone had a garden in front of their house and had made a little lotus pool and they had a sign hanging there in their garden with the lotus pool that could be seen by those who were walking on the sidewalk on the street. And uh, at that time I didn't know what it was, but that turned out to be the Serenity Prayer. So I read this and I saw. Now I'm not sure if I had it completely right, but something like uh, being a prayer to have the wisdom to be able to see uh, what we can change and what we can't change, and to know the difference. And
4: that's the wisdom part to know the difference. Yes. The serenity to accept the things uh, we cannot, cannot. change. That's the second
2: one. Oh, the. What uh, uh, yeah. I mean is to accept the things I can change, to change the things courage. that I can, and the courage wisdom, to you know, change the things. Yeah, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to
1: So I think this is really good. Uh, you know, the Buddha said that at, at one point someone might see it as uh, like taking on the world or something, but someone had asked how you can distinguish what is Buddha Dhamma and what's not Buddha Dhamma, and he said, if it's in line with the basic principles that I taught. <laughs> No matter who says it, <laughs> then you can say that that's Buddha Dhamma. And uh, for some part, for some some aspect uh, of this uh, this particular prayer, it seemed like yes, this is very, very, very important. This is this is proper Dhamma to be able to see what part is just uh, just nature, and then we we relieve suffering by just by not thinking that it should be any different than that, or has to be any different than that for us to be happy. Uh, We let that go and then we're able to be with things as they are and be at at ease with them, not fighting against that, thinking that it has to be any, any other way. So in that way we put aside our war with the world. You might say, no, I'm a peaceful person, I'm a peaceful warrior. Uh, And I also really like, I like to think like that, like being an active pacifist or passive activist. I'm not sure which is the better expression, but uh, I really like this. But I relate this to the other other part, that is the things that can be changed. Number one, I can choose about my own thinking. I can even choose my views. This is something that someone who becomes mindful and then sees how things are rising, and passing, and realizes they don't have to grasp or get involved with absolutely everything, and starts to to see the things clearly like that, not just jumping in and like swept away with each, with, with each thing. Then you realize you can choose, and you even start to realize now, fellows who've heard me say this before may be boring. You even start to realize that life can be like a Google search. A Google search. Yes, that's what I said. Um, That is that you're looking for something and various things arise. And when that happens, when you do that, do you think those things are yourself? Um, You think I am the one who typed in the, uh, however I typed, uh, I'm the one who typed in the word and and brought, brought up all these things. Are they self or not self? Generated by your mind, right? Your idea, together with other conditions. (laughs) Um, Normally we don't think about those as ourself. We think, I can choose. If the number one thing that arises is not well-matching, don't have to. I can look down to the next, look down to the next. If I've come to the wrong section of things, I can add another word. If nothing was wise, I can put the keyword wisdom in there together and then see what comes up and see if I get something better and then choose from that, Yeah. Or if... (laughs) Uh, In many ways it can be adapted like that. For who has the ability to be present and to see what's rising and what's passing, uh, that's the other ability that can come, is then seeing the things, what is it, seeing the things that... Uh, are not to be changed and then also seeing the things that can be like for what thought is well thought, view choiceful, speech actions what if our life is there besides this? is there anything else? even our choices affect and condition consciousness yes? One might say, what? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about that. You have to check for yourself now. When you do meditation on distinguishing the various kandhas, the five khandhas, and discerning consciousness, six kinds of consciousness, looking at them. Are they conditionally arisen? Are they affected by conditions or not? Um, For those six kinds of consciousness. And does anything I do or think change or shift? Um, that or not. You can just ask the question yourself. So the choices choices that we're making affect all of us. Now, let's see, yeah, I take me Kitty as example here, if she doesn't mind. So, you know in one way I could say how Kitty is is just just how she is. And how I am is just how I am. And however I see her and know her, that's just my own mind. Just my own thing. I may have right understanding of her, I may have some wrong ideas, all of this. That's, I could be thinking things that are completely off-base, based on a misunderstanding about that I heard from somebody, and if I talk to her, I'm holding this idea about her, and then I talk to her and she's, not me. <laughs> you've got, you've got somebody else's story. <laughs> I never lived in Kalamazoo as a teenager. <laughs> uh, someone's got their wires crossed, yeah. And then I, oh really? That wasn't you. <laughs> then my idea about her shifts. But did she change, uh, or is it just my idea that that changes? Um, but then it also has effect. It also has effect. We know how quickly it can shift. We think, I am myself, I am myself, and then that's unique, separate individual, and yet someone comes in and they're in a bad mood, and then one minute later your day is spoiled as well. (laughs) Ah, that was horrible! Ah, yikes! How can you do like that? Then? Uh, this kind of thing, next three days you're... Uh, something. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> uh, yes, your mind was very, very important in that, but not the only important thing. And we see conditions, conditionality, non-self. Uh, but we have choice. We have choice. So seeing the things that we can change and those that we can't, now, I've heard people say, I'm too old. I'm too old for this. I'm set in my ways. Don't teach an old dog. Mm. Is it an old dog or an old horse or an old
4: cat? <laughs> dog? dog. dog. <laughs> <laughs> they can't and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well this is what neuroplasticity teaches us.
1: <laughs> you can teach an old dog your tricks. <laughs> In fact, now some of my friends have been sharing these heartwarming, wonderful heartwarming animal stories about animals who've been kept in captivity or in horrible conditions for nearly their entire lives, and then somebody rescued them and took them out, and, and then within a few months it's like their life is transformed by this new situation, released from prison, getting loving care, and they had looked like they're, you know, just so awful abused on the verge of death, and then you see six months later, and here's spot now! <laughs> and even an old dog, yes? Um, so, and not only the old dogs. <laughs> not only the old dogs. Um, so, I'd like to ask anyone else um, anything particularly, particularly salient uh, from this particular teaching, whether last night or from from someone else.
3: Um, the last part I've just there, I've a of the sutta, the teacher talks about um, the noble eightfold path. Uh, I wasn't mentioned so much last night. Um. Mm. Uh, another teacher, uh, who was talk, uh, talking about it, and um, what was really uh, meaningful. And that was how he explained the gradual training of Sila Samadhi, and Panya and how um, I think virtue, concentration, and wisdom are all complementary to each other mm. and how it's a, it's a, a three-fold or an, an eight-fold um, training and that all of the factors of the path are essential for awakening and it's um, it's a well-rounded and gradual and uh, fully integrated path in that. a lot of meaning to the whole rest of the sutta,
0: to the, mm. the
3: formal truths and um, the middle way, and and then the how-to, and uh, the perspective of um, how everything you have in regards to
1: path. Uh, three trainings, sila, samadhi, and panya. Uh, there's the way that sila is a base for samadhi and samadhi a base for panya. But then, in order to practice sila, one really needs, in order to practice sila well, an amount of panya is needed, because how else are you going to discern what is, what is sila? How else are you going to discern? Is this a cause of suffering or not? Really, truly. Is this wholesome and beneficial or not? A certain amount of wisdom is actually needed in terms of discernment. So panya can be translated as wisdom. Panya can be translated as discernment. And uh, satipanya, uh, longpocha, cha. Uh, I used to like to use the term Satipanya, maybe short for Satisampajanya in my teaching on mindfulness. So the, the mindfulness being conjoined with uh, wisdom. Uh, mindfulness and wisdom or mindfulness and clear comprehension. So the clear comprehension makes discernment possible. And the discernment is where the choices that I was talking about can be made. Learning from the making of the choices, discerning and learning from the making of the choices, this is where the wisdom then arises. So there's that clear seeing and knowing of causality that can happen. And then and discerning what has a cause. And also one discerns, what is it, in the absence of a cause, this will come to an end. Though so if you'd like suffering to come to an end, then you... Discern what is the cause of this suffering, and uh, then remove the cause. If there's another underlying cause that you can see, get down to that, get down to that. And then how we can work, how we can work with that. Meditation then is also very, very important to develop the clarity and the stability of mind to be able to see. So, for the discernment to be possible, and here now we're talking then about Samadhi and about Panya supporting Sila. And I had just said that the Sila supports the Samadhi and the Panya, but this is the way that it's like there are all the, the integral fe- feedback loops, how, as uh, Jasmine mentioned, how these three trainings are all supporting each other, and how all three are active then can be active in each of the folds. Of the, of the Eightfold Path. Or the wheel can also be divided, where sila predominates. In our intentional use of mind, our intentional use of speech, our intentional uh, bodily actions, or where samadhi is predominant, or then out of samadhi coming into right view, uh, where, or views, where hopefully wisdom, clear awareness, uh, wisdom and discern discernment predominate. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for sharing about that part. Let me check if anyone else wishes to share uh, anything, particularly any insight or anything that you remember from uh, uh, from this last this last night uh, or this teaching. Anyone else is teaching on on this subject that just shines in your mind, it's outstanding. Because not only is sati important as mindfulness, but it's important as recollection and as wise recollection, as the way even that some in the path could be translated as as wise. Uh, right recollection so remembering what we see what we know remembering what's inspiring remembering insight that we've had and what's understood uh, at the right time in the way that supportive also very helpful because as we remember as we bring that to mind there are shifts that happen in the body different potentials get activated within us and that potential, that window that opened up at that time can be opened up again uh, just by that That memory, and memory run amok, can also send us to hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> it can be <laughs> uh, unskillful, unskillful, <laughs> compulsive, addictive, <laughs> negative, <laughs> afflictive memory going on becomes like the demon driver, (laughs) except for the demon driver is not really someone or something else. It's not self, but it's also not other. Yeah? It's just afflictions out of control. (laughs) And if they get fed, they'll do that. If they don't get fed, they die out. And uh, they go into the compost heap, and out of them grow, out of that energy grows other things transformation of energy and what was once an affliction becomes your rose guard or your past or your freedom. Uh, oh, I'm not
4: sure what time is but oh <laughs> jeez <laughs> but I would... cause what really strikes me. Yes. We have time. Please and share if you feel it's valuable and worth it. Well, the whole Dhamma Chakra Sutta, Anya Kundanya gathers from that whatever has it, the nature to rise passes away, has the nature to pass. From that teaching, this is what he, he like got. And that's where the fireworks went off in the cosmos. And, yeah. and so the fact that, that he understood so deeply, saw into impermanence so deeply from that teaching um, is what really, I mean, just from studying the sutta, I don't know, I don't. haven't heard really anyone talk about particularly that that he got that, that is distilled down into his understanding, this really, 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 really deep understanding of everything, everything. Oh, all okay, conditioned things. All the things that have the nature to rise, have the nature to pass. And he, he, it just like completely opened him up. He just completely was able to get, let go of self. I, I'm thinking, you know, so I did was touching on that, it's just that that freedom of non-self, of, of that being empty of, of anything that's fit, anything that's just like, like you're talking about the ridgepole pole, just being shattered. And and then the 10,000 world systems, you know, there's this cascade of all the devas saying, "No, oh, the teaching has been, you know, given by the Buddha and it's unstoppable. And, and they're rejoicing and it goes up and all this is going on, the world shakes and everything like that. And then, the Lord Buddha says, Kandanya knows. He understands. And you know, like all this stuff went on. He doesn't say, oh, the 10,000 world systems were shaking. And the commentator right, said and everything. He just says, so you know Kandanya. <laughs> I mean, that was the most important thing, is that the other human beings can understand his teaching. So this is what what strikes me most about that sutta. But I don't know seeing impermanence that deeply from that teaching
2: But we're talking about... He speaks about the arising and cessation of dukkha which is the powerful paradigm and then once you understand about dukkha this is Dukkha, this is the arising of Dukkha, this is the cessation of Dukkha. And then that paradigm is so earth-shakingly powerful that Dukkha has the nature to arise and has the nature to cease, depending on conditions. And then uh, you can see in the other suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya they say um, the eye faculty, this is the eye faculty, it has the nature to... This is the arising of the eye faculty. This is the cessation of the eye faculty. This is the path leading to the cessation of the eye faculty. This is the visual object. This is the arising, the cessation, the path leading to the cessation of the visual objects. This is the eye consciousness. And then every single one of any way you mm-hmm. subdivide or look at anything that is possible to experience, the, in the later sutras as they say, "You see it. You see this. How it arises. This how it passes away. This is the path leading to the passing away." So it's, it's, that's the paradigm. And so Vajraya the, um, the, Kandangani then generalized that paradigm beyond saying this is only true about Dukkha to that it's generally true about
0: experience, because he understood it. you know... It's
4: distilled they, to that.
0: Yeah, right. He gained vision of the Dhamma right at that time, which is also a vision of Nippon. So
1: true, real. Uh, vision of Nirvana vision of the dhamma mm. uh, of causality of conditional causality he summed up everything that has the nature to rise also has the nature to cease. Uh, and there's a further further saying that when that rising and ceasing also ceases uh, also ends then this is uh, is it perfect
0: oh, peace. Uh, hmm. So beautiful, just,
1: you know, amongst the ordinary things that all have the nature to rise and, and to pass. Things of body, things of feelings, things of mind, uh, to be seen and known for ourself. So kundanya, then anya kundanya, because and he was called Kondanya, who knows, uh, became a stream-enter at that time. But the other four, no. Then we have the two subsequent teachings, the uh, Buddha's discourse on non oneself, anathalakana sutta, and then the fire, the fire sermon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Someone asked if it's fire and brimstone. I don't know about fire and brimstone. Uh, Not much brimstone there, but uh, the the fire sermon also is uh, teaching on non-self. So with that base, from that base, then, of of this teaching for those five uh, practitioners, ascetics, then this is what was moved into, this point that uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedho mentioned last night uh, succinctly, and that Michelle mentioned today, and now that uh, uh, Vijana and Ayasopana have also been mentioning. This then is the point that they went into and started working with. It's supposed to be they took turns, even one or two going into the town for alms, while the others were receiving instruction, uh, personal instruction from the Buddha and so taking turns alternating uh, with one another like that for a week, uh, working on working with these teachings together. Uh, can you imagine if you were to undertake to work with these teachings uh, just as, a, uh, as an exercise? Uh, to devotedly and dedicatedly look into, look at, and to work with these teachings in, in your life, in whatever you're doing for this next week, or even uh, I should have said for these next three months, uh, or even for this next week, uh, or even for one day, to really uh, look into what what that is in these teachings and see if your own uh, eye of insight passes through and, aha, I see, I know, and could also be called, uh, what is it, Anya, not Anya Kondanyo, but uh, Anya Shari, and uh, uh, Anya Shirley, and Anya Gabby. Uh so this would be uh, this would be wonderful. This would be excellent. We have Shari, who knows, Gabby, who knows. What does it mean when you hear that? when you, when you think uh, of that in your body, in your mind? Uh, do your own thoughts of yourself allow for that? What happens in your body? How do the cells suddenly turn around and start uh, start, start turning at that thought at, at such an idea? Or what obstacles arise, and if you see the things that come up that say, "No, well that's not possible for me," then I'll see know where your work, where your work is, what what needs to be done. Is that true? Is it something true? What is that, and um, how can it be cared for? Or uh, if it's not helpful and beneficial, uh, and, and you, you were you a boss and you had employees that were not not working well. <laughs> Would you, would you keep them on the same job that they're <laughs> in the same way? You might change their job, change their work. Uh, you can apply them to something else. So, I want to thank you and Animodhana uh, for listening to this Dhamma, for thinking about Dhamma, bringing forth Dhamma, reflecting upon it uh, together today. And I want to invite you for whatever is good and helpful and true and beneficial in this dhamma that you can take with you, please, please yours to receive and keep. Please hold well and keep well for uh, for all of your benefit, um, really for your long-term benefit and happiness. Together with all other good dhamma that you know, and anything that's not useful or beneficial, completely freely welcome to leave behind no obligation
0: Uh, because we're free. So, sadhu 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 anamodami. Anamodama to everyone.
5: Thank you for listening.